här är ett poddradioprogram från Studentradion 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradion 98,9. Av upphovsrättsliga skäl är musiken förkortad. In the field of human conflict, but so much owed by so many to so few. Utrikespolitik. Inga pajaskonster. Inte hehe och hehe. We are Radio UF, and today we have something a bit different for you. I actually missed last week's episode, so Malko, what did you talk about? I mean, last week we talked about a giant island of floating trash in the middle of the ocean. Okay, so on another note today, we're going to be talking about Great Britain. Uh, a lot has been going on in the UK lately, from the passing of Prince Philip to riots in Belfast and whatever is going on in Scotland. Unfortunately, an hour is not long enough to do all of these topics justice, so today we will be concentrating on just a few things. My name's Greta, and I will be talking about current threats to British democracy and the rise of corruption in the UK government. But I'm not alone in the studio today. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? My name is Melker, and I will be talking about foreign policy, nuclear power, and uh, stuff like that. And my name is Melina, and I will be talking about diversity in post-Brexit British society. Oh. Who, who is our host and who is our technician for this episode? <laughs> I'm the host, I'm Greta. Um, I'm Melina, I'm the technician. So if there are any tef- technical difficulties, you know who to blame. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be right back talking about British foreign policy after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Radio UF at Student Radio Nitiotecomania, and you just heard Your Moment by Hugo Hamlet Poole. Today we are talking all things British, and I believe, Melka, you're going to be talking to us about foreign policy. Yes. So last episode I got the opportunity to talk about plastics, but now I'm back to foreign policy subjects. So most British foreign policy has for the past five years been centered around Brexit, and we have talked about that for more than one episode. And because of that, we're going to leave it there. But the effects of Brexit are interesting. Uh, There have been a certain uh, realignment following the partial separation of Great Britain from the EU. Um, There's been trade deal rows and vaccine rows, tax discussions. But there's also been attempts at getting closer to the US post-Brexit. But I think that with the new US administration being less anti-EU, that might calm down a a bit. But uh, the UK government appears to be looking east uh, towards the Indo-Pacific. 
uh, this Indo-Pacific tilt, as it's called, um, has, according to PM Boris Johnson, been about seizing Asian economic opportunities and giving Great Britain a presence in the region that might be able to counter the increased Chinese presence, which I would argue is maybe 10 years too late, but uh, um, I guess that's his plan. And he's going to partially do this by doing something in true gunboat diplomacy fashion by having a new aircraft carrier, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, have her maiden voyage through Asia. And this thing costs three billion pounds and will be carrying a squadron of F-35 jets from the US Marines. But new foreign policy approaches, it's not only about trying 50-year-old ideas like aircraft carriers. Uh, It's also a goal to make Britain a... Uh, modernized um, and R&D-based defense. A lot of cybersecurity spending, including a military space force capable of launching the UK's first rocket by 2022. Oh my God. Yeah. And this will, of course, lead to increased um, uh, defense budget. Uh, one, uh, 16.5 billion pounds over four years. The biggest since the end of the Cold War. Great. <laughs> um, and um, lastly... I'd like to talk about the ultimate military status symbol, the nuclear stockpile and the Trident nuclear warheads. The latest mission, um, the latest news around this is, of course, that um, there has been a decision to increase the cap on British nuclear stockpiles by more than 40 percent from 180 to 260 Trident nuclear warheads. And these are made to be fired by nuclear submarines. So these are submarines that are powered by nuclear power and can fire nuclear warheads. And um, there's an excellent Guardian long read article on this British nuclear submarines and what their future might be. And the truth is that there isn't really much of a future, but we'll get to that. Uh, the author is Ian Jack, by the way. And um, the military, and it's important to keep in mind that the military bases that prepare and care for these nuclear submarines and the warheads as well, they are all placed in Scotland. And it is actually the biggest industrial site in the entire Scottish nation. Um, but it also comes at a great, great costs in addition to the risk of nuclear annihilation. Um, four of these successor nuclear submarines, as they're called, have been prepared. And they're supposed to be the next generation of nuclear submarines. And the price has been around that of the UK Crossrail and High Speed 2 public infrastructure projects. Uh, around 15 uh, billion pounds, if I remember correctly. This project is uh, expected to cost 40 billion pounds by the government, with critics estimating that it will run around uh, uh, 100 billion after 40 years of upkeep. And since there's no real way of scrapping nuclear submarines, they'll just have to leave them. Um, And that's not great. So why spend all this money? money? Status and influence. Uh, Tony Blair actually talked about this in his uh, biography. And he says that he saw a lot of pros and cons, but he just didn't want to be the guy who said, I want to scrap the nuclear missiles program. But something that is super interesting, and that I'm just going to cover very quickly, is that in case of Scottish independence, the entire nuclear arsenal, more, more or less, will now be in a foreign country. And the fact is, it would cost <laughs> so much money it's actually said to be an eye-watering amount of money in an official report to move all this nuclear infrastructure from Scotland to the UK. And that might actually be the thing that makes the UK give up on their nuclear um, um, stockpile in that case. 
And yeah, I think Tony Blair said it, said it best. No one wants to be the one who pulls the nuclear plug. And uh, I think that's about it for that subject. Thank you. We'll be right back discussing more about the UK after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Radio UF at Student Radio Nitiotekomenia, and you just heard Club Pilot by Fruit Bats. Today, we are talking about my home country, the United Kingdom, and now we will be discussing the current challenges to democracy in the UK. The most obvious threat to democracy at the moment is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which made international news for reducing British citizens' ability to protest by imposing noise limits on protests, making intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance and offence, and adding a prison sentence to damaging memorials. This is a clear attack on last summer's Black Lives Matter protests, which culminated in statues being pulled down by demonstrators. Basically, the bill is designed to reduce the number of ways people can protest. Anything beyond a simple march could be seen as a public nuisance. In fact, under this legislation, neither the suffragette protest nor the protest which freed Nelson Mandela would have been allowed to take place. The bill has been widely criticised, with 150 rights organisations addressing a letter to the government warning that it would be an attack on some of the most fundamental rights of citizens. For me, what makes this bill an even more blatant attack on democracy is the incumbent Conservative Party track record on respecting democratic norms. It was only in August 2019 that Prime Minister Boris Johnson attempted to illegally prorogue Parliament in order to prevent scrutiny of the government's Brexit bill and force the UK to leave the EU on time. And even before this date, it was Theresa May who spoke with contempt of a Parliament which she felt was blocking the will of the people. Before that, David Cameron campaigned to scrap the Human Rights Act, It is understandable, then, why I doubt the Conservative Party's respect for democracy. I personally think Boris Johnson shows some populist tendencies which are really worrying to me. For example, let's go back to 2019. Part of the Conservative Party election campaign in December, other than the simple slogan, let's get Brexit done, was a lo-fi hip-hop track with pro-conservative lyrics. You know who else released a lo-fi hip-hop track? Austria's populist FPÖ party. In my eyes, Boris Johnson and co are able to act as if they are not populist by hiding behind a respectable party name. They aren't seen as populists, but in reality they really are. They claim to represent the will of the people and denounce anyone who disagrees with them as anti-democratic enemies of the people. And they lie. Non-stop. Peter Stefanovic made a film debunking many of the lies Boris Johnson spouts out every time he stands in the House of Commons, which include playing with statistics, telling things which are just not true and making things up. Unfortunately, it seems that the opposition is not holding the government to account. Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, is failing to call out the government on key issues or correct its lies. For example, MPs spent over seven hours paying tributes to Prince Philip, may he rest in peace, but only five scrutinising Boris Johnson's final Brexit deal. The same goes for much of the mainstream media. I listen to the BBC religiously, but I have noticed that many stories go under the radar, or if they are reported on, don't ever get picked up again. Moreover, whilst I'm sad that Prince Philip passed away last week, I have to say it got a tad too much coverage. And by a tad, I mean a lot. When I tuned into the six o'clock news, it was just half an hour of tributes to the prince. Other stuff was going on in the world, but you wouldn't know it. It turns out all scheduled programming on the BBC was suspended, leaving a full 36 hours for talking non-stop about Prince Philip. (laughs) Who knows what they will do for the Queen? On the evening of the day the prince died, the main UK TV channels, BBC One and BBC Two, were both playing the same documentary at the same time, so people didn't have the choice to watch something else. 
This obsessive commemoration is really bizarre and seems like the kind of thing that would happen when a country's dictator dies. This seems to reflect a tendency at the BBC at the moment to suck up to the government, to appear to be conservative and patriotic enough not to face criticism, or worse, not get their charter removed. When the government makes mistakes, it's barely commented on. Peter Stefanovic's video calling out the government has got 10 million views online and is being reported on in Italy and in France, but hardly any of the main British newspapers or even the BBC have reported on it. It's really worrying for the future of our democracy. But I think I have talked slash ranted for a while now, so we will be right back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Radio UF at Student Radio Nitiotekomania. You just heard this week's single, Afrique Victime, by Mdu Mokhtar. Today, we are talking about the UK, but we've yet to discuss discrimination in Britain. Melina, what do we know about this? All right. So just to clarify, for purposes of time, we're going to focus on ethnic diversity only. So the UK is often portrayed as a highly diverse society and a model for multiculturalism in Europe. But... Is it really the case? As the journalist June Sarpong put it in her 2017 article for The Guardian, British politicians of all persuasions used to promote diversity as one of the jewels in the crown of British society. However, inequality remains entrenched in a UK still ruled by a small circle of elites, which chokes the dream of a diverse meritocratic system of social progression. One thing that we must acknowledge, however, according to a 2011 LSE blog post, is that the UK has managed to forge a sense of belonging amongst its population, including ethnic minorities. However, I wonder to to an extent that still holds true 10 years later. On top of that, British society remains highly specially segregated, with different communities living parallel lives. And more more recent reports show that segregation is generally on the decline. However, smaller subsets of minority and white British populations have become more segregated. And now that I'm on this topic, I will continue to annoy you with another report, (laughs) looking at perceptions of immigration this time. So the... 2018 National Conversation Survey carried out by the ICM polling company has shown that 4 in 10 people in the UK believe multiculturalism has undermined British culture and that migrants do not properly integrate. Interestingly, however, the study also reveals that 63% of people felt migrant workers supported the economy by doing the jobs British workers did not want to. And a similar number said that those migrant workers brought valuable skills for the economy and public services such as the National Health Service. As The Guardian puts it, a majority of respondents believed that the diversity brought by immigration has enriched British culture, but half said public services were under strain from immigration and that migrants were willing to work for less, putting jobs at risk and lowering wages. So we can see here that the perception of immigration is a bit ambiguous. And now another report, last I promise, but (laughs) definitely not least. So the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities has recently released uh, its findings. A report had been commissioned by the the British government in the wake of the um, Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd murder. 
And yes, here are some of the commission's conclusions. So race matters less than family structure and social class in determining an individual's fate. And that can be illustrated in education, where children from ethnic minority communities are doing as well or better than white pupils in compulsory education, with the exception of black Caribbean pupils, the only group to perform less well. And as it's written in the report, this success in education has transformed British society over the last 50 years into one that offers far greater opportunities for all. Moreover, the pay gap between all ethnic minorities and the white majority population has considerably shrunk to the extent that it has become almost insignificant for employees under 30 years old. And another good news is that diversity has increased in certain prestigious professional sectors, such as law and medicine. So good news overall, should one say. But, <laughs> except that this report uh, has been the object of a huge controversy, as it is, it is suspected to have been su substantially rewritten by the UK uh, government officials. Actually, commissioners were not able to read the full text before publication, and 10th Downing Street has been accused of bending the work of the commission to fit a more palatable political narrative, as the BBC phrases it. And the report drastically downplays institutional racism and structural discrimination. And it basically found that there was no institutional racism, which is definitely hard to believe. And that led um, the Financial Times to affirm that UK report on race is a masterclass in gaslighting. Thank you, Melina. We will take a quick break, but we will be right back with more on the UK after this. That was När sekunderna faller by Längtan. Good thing that we switched places so I'd, I could handle the Swedish pronunciation. <laughs> and we're talking about Great Britain and uh, we kind of touched upon it previously about um, mixing with reports and that will lead us into the next topic that is corruption. Take it away. Thank you. Yeah, I do think it's time we discuss corruption in the British government. And here I just want to give a, a shout out to my dad because he feels very strongly about this topic. Uh, one story that's been in the news a lot lately at home is the Greensill Capital scandal. Last year, former Prime Minister David Cameron sent multiple texts to the current Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, asking the government to help his new employer, Greensill Capital. He was asking for the largest possible allocation of government-backed loans during the pandemic. David Cameron also lobbied a number 10 aide and in 2019 took Greensill to a private drink with Matt Hancock, the health secretary. What's more shocking is that the government went along with it. Rishi Sunak replied to David Cameron's text, saying that he would push the team at the Treasury to try and give Greensill full access to the loans. Treasury officials even met with Greensill to discuss this possibility. More recently, we've learned that the government's chief commercial officer began working at Greensill Capital when he was still a civil servant, and that Lex Greensill was even listed as a senior government advisor whilst David Cameron was prime minister. The response to this has been that Boris Johnson has launched an independent investigation into David Cameron's lobbying, led by government advisor Nigel Boardman. There are a couple of issues with this. First, why only investigate David Cameron's actions? And secondly, Nigel Boardman is a government ally. Labour has questioned the government's choice to mark its own homework and called for a wider inquiry based around a cross-party panel of MPs. This idea was defeated in the House of Commons, but two common select committees have announced that they will look into this issue. 
Critics argue that the current lobbying rules are too lax and need to be strengthened. Keir Starmer is capitalising on this scandal by painting it as the return of Tory party sleaze. This harks back to the 1990s, when the Conservatives fell from office after being described as the party of sleaze by the press, thanks to their reputation for corruption and scandal. But why are we talking about this now, when Conservative corruption has been rampant for at least a year? In November 2019, Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick exchanged texts with a Conservative donor, and in July 2020, Jenrick admitted that he'd helped said donor avoid paying a new tax on his housing development. Then, during the pandemic, when the National Health Service was at breaking point with a severe lack of personal protective equipment, and the government was attempting to procure more equipment, you guessed it, more corruption. Suppliers with political connections were directed to a high-priority channel for UK government contracts, where bids were 10 times more likely to be successful, and many of these contracts were made without competition. As Professor Liv David Barrett points out, it's not clear to me why MPs or peers should have any special expertise on whether a company is qualified to provide PPE. Meanwhile, last year, former special adviser to the Prime Minister, Dominic Cummings, broke the lockdown rules, only to be protected by Boris Johnson and even allowed to hold a press conference to defend his actions, something advisers are not allowed to do. If we come back to the present day, the Observer newspaper has found that Conservative MPs are putting their rent payments on taxpayer-funded expenses, while at the same time renting out other residential properties for at least 10000 grand a year. Meanwhile, the government is cutting housing benefit for the poorest tenants. This culture of protecting their own, of giving jobs to their friends and of dodgy contracts is worrying, but the way it is being dealt with by the media is perhaps even worse. The government is learning that no one needs to resign over scandals. They can bluster their way through and the media and the population will forget about it and move on. It's extremely damaging. Do you think there will be some sort of reaction to this? Do you think they can wipe up another like party of sleaze narrative and people take offence at it? That's, that's what Labour's trying to do, but... Honestly, so far, all we've seen is like the the Conservatives have been acting like this for so long. It gets in the media for like a week and then people forget about it. And the Tories are still leading in the polls. So it really makes me doubt whether or not, you know, whether or not we have the current political culture for it to have any impact, for these scandals to have any impact on the Conservative popularity. Yeah, there seems to be a media saturation all around the world with news. Bad, we're getting used to bad news, so we don't care about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back. You're listening to Student Radio 98.9, Radio UF. You just heard Are You High by The Knox and Mallrats. And I think that a sort of a connecting topic through this episode has been British identity in a way. And something that I think really puts this into interesting is the concept of a model minority. Would you like to explain more about that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's something I came across reading about diversity and racism and... Uh that's another form of, let's say, covert or subtle racism is this like model minorities myth. So, yes, certain minorities are like portrayed as uh, the um, ideal citizens. And yeah, what it takes to integrate into British society. And for instance, in the UK, those model minorities are usually uh, Chinese and Indian students. Chinese and Indian people, for instance, students are typically constructed by teachers uh, as like diligent, hardworking, very pragmatic toward their education. They are considered to be quiet, obedient, yet they're not constructed by teachers as ideal or natural. 
So that's really interesting because like, even though they're idealized in a way, they're not the ideal. I don't know if that makes any sense. And that puts a lot of pressure on their shoulders and they're expected to succeed and find it, find it harder to speak out. And that can lead um, those like subtle forms of racism to be overlooked because model minority students are usually academically successful. So people mm. believe that saying that uh, Chinese people succeed is not racist because it's uh, lifting them up. But it still is a form of discrimination in a way. Yeah, I definitely feel like I think this is something they also have an issue with in America. Also, again, among the kind of Asian community, because they are seen to have white privilege in the sense that they have these like higher level jobs. But mm -hmm. they also face the same discrimination that black people do or Latinos do. Uh, and so it's a, it's really problematic, I think. Yeah, I always think it's kind of messed up that you have to be a perfect citizen to not get treated badly. And that's kind of the concept that underlines all this. And uh, especially we have to think about, especially that it's uh, in the US, for example, Asian people, they usually have a much bigger starting capital if they get to the US compared to like a South American immigrant, for example. And then it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and even pits uh, groups against each other also. So it's a really harmful, hmm, harmful concept to have. That's a really good point. And actually, one thing uh, I noticed when I was having a look at the discrimination report, the recent discrimination report, was that uh, one recommendation was that they want us to stop using the acronym BAME, so Black and Minority Ethnic, um, because that groups all minority uh, ethnicities together. Um, and I just wonder what you guys think about that, because for me, I do wonder whether or not it's having such an acronym is a necessity, even though it does oversimplify things. It's a necessity because you cannot every time you want to talk about something, you can't list every single ethnic group. I don't know how you what you think of that. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm always wondering whether BIPOC, so black, indigenous and people of color would be better. Mm. But then, yeah, I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a difficult question, I think. Yeah, it really is. Because, um, um, yeah, you don't want to oversimplify as well because um, every single group has some sort of different... Um, um, like challenges. Yeah, exactly. Challenges. Mm. That's specific for that group, I think. Uh, but then again, you can't always specifically say this type of people from this country. So. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, definitely. But I think one concept that super harmful is referring to certain minority groups as non-whites because mm -hmm. that, then that makes the like white people the norm yeah. and yeah that's definitely not a solution that's very true one thing you also mentioned to me in the break just talking more generally about british identity was what it is to like how how you define yourself as british because for me personally when people ask where i'm from i always say the uk um, and I always say that I am British, but I think that's kind of an English thing to say that you're British. I think if you're Scottish, you will say you're Scottish and not British, um, unless maybe you're from Northern Ireland, in which case it's kind of a political statement to say mm -hmm. that you're British. Um, but I, I, I find that really interesting. I don't know if you've noticed that among other Brits that you've come across. Yeah, definitely, especially among my English friends, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That was Hide and See by Beachhead, and you're listening to Radio UF at Student Radio 98.9. We've been talking about Great Britain, and as a Swede, I always think of Great Britain as empire, like uh, 
influencing stuff and we talked about that in the break that it kind of feels like after EU it feels like um, Great Britain has gone has just exited a, they've just had a divorce and now they're out on the town looking for new exciting things to do <laughs> like going to the Indo-Pacific but what do we think will they um, will they drink too much and end up lonely at a, uh, a restaurant or <laughs> yeah Well, when we joined the EEC in the 1970s, it was because we recognized that we could no longer survive as a post-imperial power. We couldn't rely on the Commonwealth to give us that great power status anymore. But by leaving the EU, I feel like we forgot that. Um, And there's been a slight renewal of these imperial ideas, like you said. And one thing that I think is really interesting about British education is that we don't learn about the empire at all. At least I didn't. Mm. Um, And so I think a lot of young British people went to school with a tendency to whitewash Britain and assume that we were always the good guys. And we don't really have this idea of like the bad things that Britain used to do. And so when it came to last summer in the Black Lives Matter protest, I kind of think that was a result of a lot of British people suddenly realizing, oh, my gosh, we did some really bad things. Like we colonized, you know, half the world. Um, And so I think possibly now among young people, there's less of a sense of like, yeah, imperial power um but definitely you know the government is still kind of go, going for this what what was the expression that boris johnson used like britain is in the world or something like this yeah yeah like the 60s 70s influential state after the world wars and the same with nuclear weapons it's signaling that we are alone and we can handle this basically and it's an it's an interesting development and it seems to be a disconnect with younger people as you said um Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that uh, a lot of British people have, um, I, th- I think a lot of British people honestly have let themselves down by not knowing about uh, about the empire. And I don't really think people had such an excuse not to know about it, but I'm glad people are now em- uh, educating themselves on it. But how do you and your friends see the Commonwealth? Is it a source of pride or is it like allies or like... Um, I would say it's a source of pride to an extent. But if I'm honest, I'm not a typical Brit in the sense I don't live in Britain and also I don't actually have that many British friends. <laughs> so I can't really comment on that, I'm afraid. All right. But I guess that's a positive thing that there is a discussion about this kind of growing. Um, and uh, the new um, going out on the town approach will probably not work. So no, no more empire. That's good. <laughs> uh, we've been uh, Radio UF and... Um, We would like to wish you all a pleasant evening. Until next time. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Det här var en poddradioversion av ett program från Studentradio 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradio 98,9. Att lyssna fritt är stort, att lyssna rätt är större.